So for podcast number 43, we're going to change things up a little bit here. I've got uh, Joel Struthers coming on the podcast. Joel's a friend of mine. He works for a risk mitigation company and flies helicopters. He flies heli skiers in the winter and does forestry firefighting in the summer. But prior to all of that, he was a legionnaire with the French Foreign Legion. He's written a book about his time in the French Foreign Legion called Appel. And we're going to have him on and we're going to chat a little bit about Appel, about life in the French Foreign Legion, about some of the leadership, because the Legion's known a little bit more for its, uh, its toughness than a lot of other military units. So some of the leadership and how that's affected him. And also a little bit about helicopters for rescuers, um, you know, do's and don'ts. And then finally, he started an enterprise called Legion Engineered in order to help with uh, PTSD awareness and treatment for veterans. Many of you know Ronan is uh, predominantly owned and run by former military and, uh, you know, all military. We've got Aussies, Brits, Canadians, Americans all working for us. And of course, now we're out of France here. And we've also have some other friends of ours that have served Belgium, French militaries, German military. And this is not a, um, a Canadian problem or an American problem. You know, the PTSD, um, it's, and it's not even a military problem. I mean, most of our other staff, if they're not former military, even if they are, are fire service or police. And this problem, this, this disease, this condition, whatever you want to call it, you know, PTSD, operational stress injury, it affects all levels of all of those professions. And so we wanted to introduce the world to Joel and just talk about, you know, what he's doing to try and help with this. So there you go. Podcast number 43. So today on the podcast, we are honored to have Joel Struthers with us. Joel is a former legionnaire, a renowned author, a helicopter pilot, a father, a Canadian, and a bunch of other things that we'll chat about during the podcast. But generally, we're going to stick between the book that he's written on the Legion, some leadership that he's picked up from the military, a little bit about helicopters, and a little bit about his transition from the military back into the civilian world. So with that, welcome, Joel. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, it's an honor myself, and I appreciate the opportunity. Right on. So let's start out. As always, you know, typical classroom scenario. Give us a little bit about yourself so that uh, the listeners that maybe don't know a lot about you get a little background. Okay. Um, well, I'm 48. I hate to hate to say that, but it's true. As you mentioned, a dad, I have two kids, a uh, son who's 14, daughter's 11. Langley, British Columbia is home. And uh, yeah, I grew up in a military family. My dad was a fighter pilot in the Canadian Air Force. I uh, spent most of my childhood on the Canadian Forces bases in Germany, did a stint in England for a year, and then uh, Coal Lake, Alberta is kind of where I finished off. And uh, yeah, basically all my family is military background. My Both my parents' uh, parents were Army. And so I grew up around the Canadian military, the military in general, and went on to play hockey, which was short-lived. I think I, I got a... Uh, free coffee mug and a t-shirt from the uh, the Lloyd Minster Junior A team there. And uh, yeah, from there I was, you know, looking for what my next step would be. And the military certainly seemed like the right calling for me. And uh, I had an interest in jumping. And yeah, that kind of leads into my 
Yeah, trials and errors in life. And then uh, obviously you mentioned the book, Appel, a Canadian and the French Foreign Legion. It kind of depicts my time serving in the uh, the Airborne Regiment with French Foreign Legion. Right on. So I guess that's a good place as any to start with the book. Um, highlight a couple of the things. You do mention in the little a little bit in the book about your growing up. And you just mentioned it here about living life overseas. And with everything that's going on in the world right now with COVID-19 and borders shutting down and stuff, um, what experiences was it like living overseas, you know, during, I guess it would have been early 70s, mid 70s, early 80s sort of time? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So it was the uh, the Cold War. Um, obviously, I knew nothing else but that. So that was reality for me. Um but it was, uh, you know, the Canadian Forces bases had their own, you know, everything. The schooling system was was Canadian, uh, French immersion. But I was surrounded by Canadians, like-minded people, kids. So it was just, it was a good, a good, uh, a good upbringing. Um, good, fond memories, formative years. And, you know, I had come from a good family. I'm a, an only child. And, yeah, sports were a big part of my, my life. My mother was... Uh, you know, into sports and had me and all that kind of stuff. And obviously hockey took over my dad. Um, yeah. As I mentioned, you know, fighter pilot, all his friends were obviously fighter pilots or involved in the military at some point. And uh, so I was just, yeah, surrounded by that environment. It just seemed like the normal thing for me and uh, I was comfortable around it. And I think that would be a big reason why I kind of went on into the military of my own at, at, you know, afterwards, um, it was just a, a comfort spot for, for myself. Sort of a tangent here. I mean, growing up like myself during the Cold War years, do you see any uh, linkage or any sort of things you can draw from from your youth and to talking to your kids today about what's going on in the world in regards to the pandemic? Um, well, no, that's a good question. Um, that's something I've started to do with my children, as you've done yourself, Mark, is, you know, try to start traveling with them and showing them the world a bit, which is, I think, important in in a young person's education. Um, I think you learn to see a lot and learn about yourself. And you're taken out of your comfort level. You see other societies, different ways of doing things, especially being in a country where you can't perhaps speak the language, understand, understand the signs or the foods for and all that kind of stuff. You you learn a lot. Um, I also think you may see for yourself facts that you may have had a wrong impression from by watching the media or what have you. Um, and I think, I think we're all in agreement with what's happening right now is trying to figure out what's true or fact. Um, but if anything, what does come out of what we're experiencing right now, I think right now is, family uh we're obviously a lot of us are you know isolating or trying to avoid social type behavior that we're we're predominantly used to so we're really just with our families in our circles and it's uh i think it's it's not necessarily a bad thing um i'm not sure if that answers your question but uh you know even for myself right now i'm trying to get my head around this whole thing it's certainly interesting times and just trying to figure out you know where this is going to lead and what in fact is the the truth behind all the uh, the events, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I mean, I agree with you with the traveling. I mean, with my family, we've traveled. And to paraphrase, and I'm going to slaughter the quote, but basically it states that the best way to get rid of racism is to travel. 
because when you start to live in other people's shoes and see the world through their perspective, it does give you some insight perhaps on why they act or operate in a way that's different. And I use different in air quotes there than what you're used to seeing. 100%. I agree. I agree. 100%. And having, you know, obviously spent my time, the six years in the Legion where we serve with, you know, a wide range of different nationalities and having worked in the Middle East, North Africa, that's, I agree with you 100%. You, you learn to, at the end of the day, we're all human beings and uh, our fundamentals are the same, things we care about, things we dislike. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a bit of a tangent out here, but that was something I always took from my soldiering is when I was in a country and I was looking or trying to understand my foe, um, for whatever reason that may be, I would try to put myself in their shoes. And when I would do so, most of the times I, I felt like if I was in their situation, chances are I'd probably be doing the same thing. Um, and uh, I think that was always, that's something I try to share with my kids is, you know, never judge a book by its cover. And there's always two sides to all stories. Absolutely. So after your time overseas, I mean, big military influence there, you joined the reserves. Um, out here in British Columbia. And I'm surprised you and I have never bumped past in that thing. I mean, I was with Keith on course, and I don't know if you had already gone over by then or not. So, um, but yeah, tell me a little bit about why the reserves and then why did you leave? Yeah, so um, to answer your question, actually, Keith Keith and I joined at the same time, the Legion. But um, I, I, I didn't know him that well. But, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um yeah, there's obviously, especially in Germany, in Baden-Baden uh, and Lahr, the, the Airborne Regiment was obviously there. And I have memories of going out, watching them jump. Um, and then my grandfather, my dad's dad, he was third wave Juno Beach. And uh, he was an artillery officer. Um, and he was a forward operating, you know, for the, uh, for the landings. He went in early to... To call in the side. Anyway, he had given me a, when I was a young teenager, he had given me a 101st Airborne jump smog that he had traded with a jumper when they were in England training pre-D-Day. And, uh, yeah, I don't know what happened. I think my mom threw it out, but uh, whatever. I blame her, but she she says no, but whatever. Well, um, <laughs> but, yeah, I love, you know, I wore that thing. And then, uh, you know, as a young young man, I watched all, you know, the the platoon. I, I had bought, uh, I think, one of my first VHS cassettes I bought was Hamburger Hill. And yeah. I watched, I watched the, you know, I think I mentioned that, but I watched the shit out of that thing. So I was always kind of interested in the, the infantry side of things, but jumping was always, was always there as an interest to me. And when I finished playing hockey and, you know, I got myself into a bit of loss of direction, perhaps hanging out with the wrong people, I could see that things were going in the wrong direction. And uh, I wanted to join the, the Canadian military, predominantly you know, infantry, if I could be a jumper and at that point in time the uh, Somalia affair was kind of an early swing and the liberal government at the time was really reducing um, the budget on the military so you couldn't get in at the time as a reg force infantry there was other positions but I was you know hard set on uh, on infantry so the only option was to join a reserve unit go through that process and if and when positions came available, they would be given priority to reservists that are serving. So, yeah, so I joined the Royal Westminster Regiment, who was, you know, obviously attached to PPCLI and were jump tasked to supporting the uh, Canadian Air- Airborne Regiment. I did my basic training and then uh, off to Wainwright for my battle school. 
And it was there actually that word kind of came down that uh, the regiment would be retasked to anti-tank with the tow missile. There would be no more jump courses because at, at that point, um, you know, it, it looked like the airborne regiment might be disbanded. So it was already discussions about that. And, uh, you know, I was, albeit I was new to the, the regiment, all kind of stuff. The morale was at all time low there. Obviously that wasn't, uh, you know, a popular thing for the guys. And, um, one of the NCOs on my course in Wainwright mentioned that another NCO had just returned from France and he had served five years with the rep. And, uh, you know, at this point I'm probably 20. Um, and I was like, what, you know, ex- you know, I didn't necessarily understand what he was saying, but he explained to me that was the rep was the second rep, which is the airborne regiment in the French foreign legion. And, you know, foreigners could go over and, uh, join and jump with the, the rep and, like most people, I didn't, you know, I had heard the name French Foreign Legion, but I, I didn't believe or think that it actually existed. Um, so that's, yeah, so it stuck in my head. And I had actually reached out to the, uh, I had called uh, an American Army and a, a Marine recruiter at the time. And the word was it would take, you know, more than a year, potentially two years for any type of paperwork to get you know your green card or whatever to join the Canadian or the, the American military um that you know no family that's that's uh, a U.S. citizen or anything as such so um you know and at that age two years is a lifetime um so I wrote I actually went down to the uh the French consulate in Vancouver and they gave me an address and I wrote to the legion and they sent me a letter back with all the um recruiting points in France you know the different regiments the pay scale some other information and um yeah, I was like, you know what, I, I got to do something. I want to go. I want to jump. And it really, yeah, it really stuck in my my mind or my psyche, whatever, that this was something that I wanted to do. I had no other real options. And it was intriguing. I thought the idea of going, you know, to a foreign country and being able to soldier and jump for, for them was just was just neat. Um, and to be honest with you, I didn't think about it too much more. I, uh, you know, told the Westie as I was done. I think at the time I was working at the Vancouver airport, chucking luggage into the uh, the aircraft. And my flew, my dad flew for Canada 3000 at the time. And uh, yeah, I jumped in a charter seat. We flew to Dusseldorf, uh, we said our goodbyes, and I took a train to Strasbourg and and joined. And um, yeah, and basically the long and short of the book Appel, um, it depicts. You know, it, it gets into the the selection and the training, and I made myself or my made my, my way to the to the rep, and I spent uh, ten months there serving with the first company, which is a combat company that specialized in urban combat and night ops, and then uh, I did selection for the GCP, which is the Group Commando Parachutiste, and the GCP um, act on two ways. They are the pathfinders for the airborne regiment. So in the French system, I won't you know bore people too much with the details, but there's nine regiments in the French military that are airborne, and uh, one of them is the Rep, the Legion. So each regiment has a GCP team, and together the GCP teams create the GCP group, and that group supports the French Special Operations Command costs. So you can you can be tasked for two two different things. You can support your regiment as pathfinders recce type stuff or you could work with a group and support the french special operations command so i and uh yeah it's 10-man freefall team um and i spent four years there 
and you know I was able to serve serve I think I saw my first uh, combat you know it was in Bungie Central Africa 96 and then we went on to um, Chad and then I was in the Congo Brazzaville on two occasions and yeah it's just an honest to be honest with you it's just an honest soldier story um, it's not ego driven you know I make tons of mistakes I learned the trade obviously a young man from Vancouver thrown into Bungie during a civil war combat is not something you know you're necessarily ready for so there's a, a huge learning curve but um i came to respect the opportunity that the legion and france had given me i certainly learned a lot about myself i grew as a man and i was able to see the world for for what it was you know yeah coming from canada i'm certainly fortunate perhaps a bit naive maybe a lot and uh, getting out there and seeing what the real world is like, it was a, it was an eye opener. And the second side of it was that um, you know after my time in the Legion, if the subject would come up that I had served in the Legion, the misconceptions or the bullshit that's out there is just you know I'm not one I'm not one to talk too too much or the, for certainly short conversation is not my strong point. So. I would almost just avoid the subject matter altogether because people would always come up with stuff like, oh, you know, like it, it exists or don't murderers and rapists join the, you know, crazy people join the French Foreign Legion. How do you respond to that in a short conversation? So I, um, yeah, I kind of decide over time. Um, I think it just came to be that I felt maybe it was my place to share a positive portrayal on what the life of a legionnaire is. Obviously I had a, you know, a good friend that was killed in action in Brazzaville, um, a good man, a good soldier, you know, left behind, obviously, family and all that kind of stuff. And so I felt like, you know, maybe those stories need to be told. And if anything, it might educate people. If they're interested, they can read and learn the truth. And uh, I was fortunate enough that, uh, you know, the Legion approved the narrative. Uh, they actually provided quite a few photos for it from the, from the time. And then uh, Wilfrid Laurier University Press, they like the um, the story and the premise. There's a lot of Canadian content there, and uh, they put their name their name on it. And that was two of the stipulations for me to put this out there, because obviously when you put out a story with your name on it, there's you're you know you're setting yourself up for judgment. Or um, so it had to be two things. It had to have the Legion's approval, which would be the first of its kind, so that it's legitimate. So I'm not necessarily just telling my side of the story. And the fact that, you know, a reputable publisher would put their name on name on it and publish it meant that the story was sound. So once those two things came together, um, yeah, out it came and it was it was released last March. And just, you know, just so it said, I'm not you know, I'm not a writer. I was a soldier with a story. Um, I certainly had. You know, the story in my head and uh, I'll kind of jump back when I got out. In 2000, my grandfather, who uh, retired a, a two-star, a brigadier, um, he was writing his memoirs. He was actually doing his degree at U of Vic at the time when I was doing my flight training in Victoria, in Sydney, actually, Victoria Airport. And he said to me, Joel, you know, if if you want to take my advice, I suggest write down your memories now, because if you don't, you'll regret it. And that's what he had. He hadn't kept a journal during the war, so he was, uh, you know, he was trying to pieced together information and he was, you know, obviously frustrated by regretting not, not keeping a journal. So I had written actually uh, about 125, 150,000 words onto a word document of my, you know, my memories and, uh, you know, no respect for 
English or punctuation or anything like that. It was just, you know, and that sat for, for 10 years basically. And, uh, with, with life and, uh, you know, my work and different experiences and then learning about my family history, um, I kind of, it, it all kind of came together. And then when I decided, you know, Hey, you know, maybe it's then, and that was the thing no, no positive portrayals were coming out. I was kind of always waiting for a book that would be, you know, show the, the legionnaire and the way it should, you know, at the end of the day, it's a young man who wants a soldier and, uh, there they go off, they go and they, they serve in the legion. So those things all came together and, uh, I did what I could. Then I hired a professional editor a lady named Janet and we worked on it together for, um, almost two years. And prior to that, I had, you know, at least 20 different people from family and friends, uh, colleagues that were in the military with me, read it from the start to the finish so that I could figure out the narrative and the arc and try to, you know, make it interesting um, throughout for different types of readers and different types of people with different backgrounds or interests, be it fiction, nonfiction, you know, they're from the military, know nothing about the military. So it's trying to find that a way to tell a story that would engage both, not, you know, not dumb it down too much, but not over, you know, traumatized stuff. And um, yeah, me and Janet, we plugged away on that for a year and a half. And then uh, once the publisher got involved, I worked with them for almost a year. So yeah, um, I think the final product and the feedback that I've had to date is, you know, we were successful in that uh, in that objective is seems like people find it to be uh, an easy and uh, entertaining read, which is, which is key. How have you uh, found being an author? Like you mentioned, your background is obviously being a soldier and it's being a soldier in a, uh, in an army and in a unit specifically that not a lot of people in your current peer group, are probably even recognize. And no. have you found it a bit different being an author. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, I don't, yeah, it's um, it's all very new to me, obviously. Um, and you know, pre-book, I wasn't I wasn't on social media. I didn't have you know, Facebook. I didn't have Instagram. And in this day and age, a lot of the you know, ninety nine percent of the responsibility to market your book, well, maybe ninety five, falls on the author. So you really have to get out there and try to sell your book. Kind of pointless to put all that time and effort into it, and then and then not try to. So. I had to, yeah, I had to get into that whole demarche and, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of stuff and learn and then navigate that. And, you know, myself, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm more of a introvert than extrovert. Um, and that's probably why I didn't have Facebook, all that kind of stuff. So that was, that was a challenge trying to find that fine line between marketing or learn or figure out myself what, like what's marketing your product and then not coming across as, ego or you know um yeah and it's that's i mean that's always a challenge but i found that hard um and yeah i don't it's it's a weird one you obviously and that was a big thing too i didn't really mention is as i mentioned the book was you know the first that was the the narrative was approved by the legion it had has a a forward for my former commanding officer who's you know he'll be a general here in the french military soon enough um I was really setting myself up for judgment by all current or former legionnaires to a certain extent. So I would have to, you know, keep that in mind. And then I'm also representing not the legion, but legionnaires per se 
on the North African continent is it, that's not a subject matter that's really spoken about or to known about. And then, for example, the, um, you know, the invitation to, to go on the Jocko Willink podcast, that was something that really weighed on me is, you know, I'm, I'm being viewed and I represent that demographic, the legionnaire. So there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of, I don't know what the word would be, but uh, yeah, it's just, yeah. So it's trying to, you know, yeah, I mean, you have to be yourself. I'm no actor, but at the same time, you really have to check yourself too and make sure that you don't make comments or reference or say the wrong thing. So it's, yeah, it's been a learning process. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's my story. It's me. You know, it's, it's not necessarily going to make everybody happy or it's for everyone. But uh, so far, to be honest with you, feedback from, the former legionnaires from, you know, the regiment or even the sections have been positive. Um, overall soldiers in general, I think, appreciate the uh, the honesty behind it. There's no, there's you know, it's it's not ego, look at me. It's it's just a, a soldier story. Um, yeah, to be honest, I haven't had any, no negative uh, feedback. I had one little uh, a young man and a little boy who DM'd me saying, uh, my dad says, uh, crazy people join the legion and you're a traitor. <laughs> <laughs> So my, 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 my response was, you should buy your dad the book. <laughs> Let him read it. Yeah. So, but no, it's been, it's been good. Um, you know, touch wood. Yeah. It's, it's come together. Right on. I don't, I, I really enjoyed the book. I've read it uh, twice. Actually, I read it once prior, probably a year ago when it was first released. And then I read it again recently, knowing that we were going to do this and I don't want to get too into the book cause I want people to buy it and read it. But could you give me, a little bit about just your impressions landing, like you said, as a Canadian, you grew up, you know, kind of around the world, but you landed on the West Coast and then you get dropped into quite a few unique places in Africa. And a lot of it has to do around combat and around civil war and what that's like, you know, coming from our part of the world Africa's yeah. crazy um, as it is without going into a civil war on top of it. True enough. True enough. Um, yeah, there's two things. I think growing up, you know, as I mentioned in the military overseas, that would have taken out a chunk of I don't know, anxiety, discomfort or whatever. Um, you know, so it wasn't really something that's totally new to me. Um, I did have a decent level of French. Um, the Canadian military system, all the schools were French immersion. So I took French immersion until grade eight. So at least that was huge for me because it, it just makes your your time in the Legion so much more easier. Um, it certainly helped me get get to where I got, I'm sure. Um, but that being said, yeah, it was it was culture shock. It was an eye opener. But key in that, I was part of a team, um, and my focus was really on doing my job, soldiering, and not being the weakest link in the you know just pulling my weight within the team and. and most of my certainly central africa bungie i was junior junior and when i joined the team i was actually not a qualified uh commando yet so i was just there to replace so i was to be honest with you i was more just focused on not fucking up uh and pulling my weight excuse my french more so than you know kind of what was going on around me albeit when i had time to kind of stand down and think about you know shit what just transpired it was yeah it was uh it was it was interesting. Um, yeah, it was a good experience. There was obviously trials and tribulations, but overall, I uh, 
I managed to to get through it. If that answers yeah. your question. Yeah. It does. Um, another topic of this is the leadership styles. And I mean, having read the book and um having, you know, sat down and had coffee with you and hearing some of the stories from the Legion, there's definitely a couple different leadership styles that are in the Legion in comparison to working with the Canadian Army or the British Army or the American Army yes. that a lot of people that listen to this podcast would be familiar with. And what were your, some yeah. of your takeaways in regards to leadership in that organization? I, for sure. Obviously, coming from the Canadian system, albeit my experience was short, but, you know, having left PPCL Battle School in Wayne and then going to the Legion system, their way of doing things certainly Legion is, is very different. Um, the officers are obviously all French, and they come predominantly from their uh, Saint-Cyr, which is their officer school. Um, and within the system, there is still class. So you would get that from some officers where you felt they were not, not looked down upon, but you certainly were in your place. And then you'd have other officers where they are more man-to-man, as long as you respected their, you know, their, their rank and grade and their, their place, they were, you didn't feel like you were not necessarily looked down upon, but you know, there's a little more humanity. Um, now the thing with the Legion, certainly during my, my era and, uh, obviously Legionnaires pre to me, were in a tougher era and things have quietened down now, but, um, it's old school. Um, the discipline is, is there, uh, a lot more so than I had experienced in the, the reserves. Um, but there's a reason for that and it, it serves a purpose and I had no issue with it and it, uh, and it's effective. So I, you know, and the, I, the big thing is people always ask me, you know, I mean, was it hard? And for me, no, it wasn't because I wanted, I wanted a soldier. I wanted to do this. So for me, it was a good, you know, it was a test of myself and it was trying to get through it. So I, I, you know, and I was lucky I athletically, um, you know, sound. And I, I like, I like the soldiering for what I experienced in the, in the Westies and stuff. So, I mean, it was, it wasn't hard. Um, and when I did make mistakes, screw up and I got, you know, slap across the face or knee the gut, whatever, which was rare, you know, it didn't really bug me. I mean, I had my, my fights playing hockey and growing up and stuff. So it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. And, but the people that are perhaps there for the wrong reason, it would be a nightmare if that makes sense. And, the discipline is there at the beginning, a little more so than towards, you know, later on, because they're trying to show you, you might not know it yet, but they're trying to show you if you want to be there or not. Are you there for the right reason? And if you think about it, at the end of the day, you're going to be sent off to, you know, some foreign land to do not necessarily the, the funnest tasks. And you want to make sure that you have the right type of people there um, and that they're going to be able to deal with it and they're going to do their job. So, the discipline serves its purpose. And I think that's why um, in the book, Appell, uh, General Crabb, who is the former uh, commanding officer of the PPCLI battalion, he had read an early version of Appell and offered and was or was willing to write a forward. And if you read it, I think that's what he's trying to get at is that, you know, the Western armies have kind of swayed away from, we've become a bit too politically correct and we don't necessarily test our soldiers enough in the early parts of their career to make sure that that is something that they're designed or ready to do. And hence potentially perhaps, you know, a high, a higher level of, you know, 
post-traumatic stress case, that kind of stuff, is that we're, unfortunately, you know, we send these young men and women to do our country's requirements into certain areas, and they, they see the worst of humanity, and it's not for everybody. Um, so I think within the Legion, they've been around for a long time, to answer your question. They've been doing this for a long time, and it's effective. So, and part of that effectiveness is the officer corps and their leadership skills and the discipline, and they continue to do so. Now, talking to people more recently, obviously, when I was in, there wasn't a, a ton of things happening. You know, Afghanistan, Iraq hadn't hadn't started. So, whereas now the Legion, you know, they've they've been in Afghanistan. Now they've been busy in Mali since 2012. They've, from what I hear and um, been told directly is that, you know, they're a little, the discipline has come back a little bit because at the end of the day, they're, they're doing the job. The legionnaires that are there are soldiering, they're busy. And when they're back in garrison on time off, they're giving them more, a little, little more leeway because at the end of the day, they're, they're doing the job and uh, turnover is always, always a concern, obviously. So if you have guys that are sticking it out and getting the job done, then just, you know, lay off. Um, and that's, I think, comes down to a difference between a peacetime and a wartime army is you'll get a different different type of person and ways of doing things. Absolutely. Um, was there one leadership trait or example that has stuck with you from that time that you kind of take with you as you move through life? 100%. I always respected the leader that led by example. And I know that's cliche, it always sounds, but it's it's true. You know, if if they were asking me to go run 8K with my rucksack on or 30 or whatever, or, you know, hit hit the target down or whatever, and they were doing it then, and they were showing me what, what was expected, then I, I, I respected that versus the, you know, the guy that's yelling at you, but he's not, you've never seen him actually do it himself for whatever reason. I just, you know. Or they do it better than I do. And then you know the level that needs to be attained. I always found that, if anything, that was more respectable to me. Is And I, I see that in my career today as a, a helicopter pilot. You know, I see guys that are better than me, and but they're humble, and you wouldn't think it. And, uh, yeah, I'm always I'm always impressed by that, uh, that trait. And I find that in humans, too. Um, you know, I'm sure you experience that if you – the talkers, the big storytellers are typically generally not, they're usually full of shit. They're sharp, you know, as an author, I should, probably shouldn't say that, but I'm not, you know. Um, but uh, it's usually the, and I saw that in, in the teams, you know, during, you get, you know, during training and garrison, you get your idea of peoples. But when you get into uh, combat type scenarios and whatever things are getting a little heated, whatever, it's it's always the, the quieter ones or the ones that are less, I don't know what the word would be, but they kind of always step up and you're like, shit, you know, that's, there's some real depth behind that person. Um, so yeah, I've always, I've always kept that. And like I said, my kids, and we talked about the tribe, you know, never, never judge a book by its cover, get people, uh, give people a chance and watch and learn. Less boisterous and garrison, more, uh, acutely aware and stressful situations sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. Um, but yeah, so, you know, to answer your question for me, an officer or someone that's in charge or in a leadership position, um, they will get a lot more out of me if they're, they they talk to me like an equal, if that makes sense. I know that they're my superior or in a leadership position, but they're also 
doing what they're asking me at the same or a better level. Um, or, you know, if, if they're not capable of doing it, but they, they need me to do it, then it's, you know, that that's clear. It's not, you know, a misunderstood fact, but it's, uh, yeah. It's I just, respectfulness all around. Yeah, 100%. I think you get more out of, more, more out of people that way. Yeah. You mentioned, um, you know, you've come back, you've become a helicopter pilot. You did your flight training in Victoria. And what are you flying now? Uh, yeah, so I, I fly for Mustang. I do the uh, the Bell 205. And, uh, you know, this winter we did, did the heli skiing. So I was on the A-Star, um, the A-350 this winter. And then next month I'll take a 205 up to Alberta for the, the beginning of the fire season. But, yeah, that's, that's predominantly what uh, – my time is spent winters is the heli skiing in Revelstoke. And then uh, the summer is uh, is firefighting. Before we delve too far into the helicopter, how is the transition between coming out of a, a military where you've seen combat and grabbing a, uh, it's not quite a nine to five job, but it's more nine to five-ish than running around Central Africa. Um, how'd you find that transition? Was it difficult? Did you know before you left? I didn't. Um, I, I just knew that, you know, I was 29 when I when I left the uh, the rep, the Legion. Um, and then I went, yeah, went straight into flight training with Vancouver Island helicopters on the island. It was definitely a transition, but I think I was, you know, I was fortunate that I was straight into like a classroom type scenario. And then obviously trying to learn how to fly helicopters. So I had that that challenge and things to focus on. So I didn't really, I probably didn't really recognize the transition too too much yet at that phase albeit you know i had an apartment and all that kind of stuff but i think i was i was disciplined enough and the cost of flight training was substantial if not you know dumb um that you know the pressure was on to 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 make every every time you know that you got out there flying count so there was there was pressure um so that that you know kind of kept me on the straight and narrow and uh, I didn't really notice. I think it was afterwards when I started actually, you know, flying for a company up north that, uh, you know, I kind of started recognizing the differences of who I had become. And then, you know, I'm in the civvy world now and uh, trying to, trying to, to make it match. But my, my path was kind of, it wasn't quite cut as cut and dry because I started working for armor group out of London, you know, after my first year of flying where they, um, an armor group say uh, they no longer exist, but they're a, you know a, a security company in London that had uh, contracts for uh, you know uh, Halliburton at the time, and they supported their efforts in North Africa with their oil and gas campaign. So they would hire French uh, well legionnaires with the the English language to act as OLC's operations liaison coordinators for Halliburton Oil. So I would do that for the uh, the winners initially when I was low time pilot because there wasn't a lot of flying for low time guys and the pay was you know absolutely zero at the beginning so I would do that so I would kind of and then the Iraq war kicked off so I would I would do and then Afghanistan so I would I would I would fly six months in Canada and then I would go overseas for the winners to you know to make some money and but I would you know be embedded or attached or somewhat involved with the military anyway so it it always kind of kept that that interest and uh, yeah, whatever the world that be. Point. Kind of got you out on your own terms then. 
Yeah. So it was kind of, you know, it was kind of a, a trend, a slow transition. Sure. I was out of the military, but I still had that kind of ability for half the year to go back when I wasn't flying and then, you know, be involved in the, in the efforts, be it, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan kind of stuff. I, and then as I got older and then, you know, family, kids, then my perspectives and, and things changed and yeah, just over time, I kind of figured it out, but I'm, there's definitely a huge difference. Um, and it's just kind of learning how to, to navigate that. And then also for yourself, trying to figure out, listen, this isn't the military and it's not going to run the same way. Um, you know, just check yourself, wind your neck in and just learn how to, to navigate the city world. You know, keep your, keep the tools that you have that you learned and use them to your advantage, but don't, you know, don't expect everyone else around you to be, you know what I mean? Um, in the military type thing. Yeah, because they're not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you just, you just, yeah, you'll just, you'll just drive yourself crazy, and you'll come across as a, you know what I mean, the asshole if you're expecting everyone else to, yeah, have the same experiences or, or whatever, such as yourself. Um, that being said, there's also lots to learn about the civi, civi world, right? Um, especially on the business side of things, that's something you know I knew nothing about. Obviously, when you're in the military, it's cost isn't necessarily really an issue and things are done based on need and safety and it's effectiveness not budget well it is done but not at our level as a soldier so when you get into the uh the civil world it's all about you know money um i mean sure safety's there but it's it's there's a fine line between safety and money um so it's kind of learning how to to navigate engage that and yeah that's that was definitely a, a challenge yeah, if that makes sense that's really good insight for guys that are getting out and <clears throat> trying to understand some of the differences and what they're going to face i appreciate that yeah no 100 and i think it's like anything is just when you hit the ground just you know shut up watch watch and learn figure it out and then find your your path you know and then i mean at the end of the day you also need to decide if this is for you but if that's your chosen path, you got to, you know, recce and find find the the path of least resistance. Pretty much. Um, you do firefighting and you do heli skiing. For rescuers that are listening to this, two biggest things that you as a pilot do or do not want a rescuer or a passenger or a repeller or something doing on your aircraft. Um. Yeah, so... I mean, you mentioned repellers that last year, you know, we have the contract with, well, they just canceled the repel program in Alberta. But, I, you know, I did that last summer with the uh, repel uh, crews in Alberta. Um, I've worked with the, the jumpers in BC. I find, honestly, the jumpers, the repel crews, their training and their their behaviors is, is excellent. Um, I honestly never had any issues and, you know, they're so on themselves and they've been around the machines so much they're switched on, you know, they're dialed into the game. They understand the, their risks and they're, they're a pleasure to work with. Um, and that being said, firefighters in general, same thing. I mean, you're obviously you can get your new, new people to the, uh, to the effort every year, but the crews that they're put with, they're put with, you know, um, experienced people and they they show them the ropes i think the big one is um when errors do happen it's just people rushing 
around the machine, um, you know, stupid things. Um, and then fatigue is always an issue, and that's usually part and parcel of the same thing. You know, they come, they've been out there on the front there doing their, playing the fire or whatever for, for a chunk of time. They're tired, they're working hard, and they come back and they do something that typically they wouldn't, but they're tired, and, you know, their shovel's way over their head, and bing, the blade hits it, and that's 100 grand, you know, right there. Um, that kind of stuff. But honestly, I don't, you know, work, especially in the, on the, uh, the fire side of things, crews are just, uh, they're switched on and it's, uh, it's, you know, there's not a lot of huge issues. Now the heli skiing side of stuff, different story. Um, but, uh, I know you're talking more about the, the rescue well, type sure. of guy, but it, it definitely comes down to, you know, what the type of work that's being done and the type of individual, whereas, you know, heli skiing, they're, you know, people that are out there to have a great time and, they're all be at their brief at the beginning and they go through the training. It's they, you know, sometimes they're just dumb. And I mean that, but <laughs> you, you, you can cut that in case any heli skiing uh, people here. Sorry, say again. I say they're just not used to working around helicopters quite as much. Yeah. And then, yeah. I mean, a typical one would be, I mean, you're, you're picking up, people at the bottom of the hill, the blades are turning and that it's a ski hill. So there's obviously a, you know, an angle to it. And if they don't stop where the guide has asked them to stop in certain pickups, they'll just ski right into turning blades, you know? And, uh, the amount of times I've sat, you know, at behind the controls, there's nothing I can do and they're getting close, but they haven't, I'm just like, ah, you know, this is going to hurt, but they, they don't, but they scare the, the crap out of me. Um, or when the blades are stopped, you know, they just, they come skiing right up to it anyway, because they haven't listened or respected the the direction that they were given by their guide. And had the t- blades been turning, that would have been the end of their head, you know? Um, so just stuff like that. But, uh, the I, blade, it's expensive uh, error just to hit it, even if it isn't rolling. No, exactly. I mean, yeah, especially in the Acer, you, it's the tiniest ding. That's, that's, it's basically a hundred grand for the three. Um, and if it's turning, if you hit one, all, typically all three are going to get, hit so yeah it's it, it gets expensive real fast um but that being said i mean you, that's just cost i mean it could kill someone real quick too um yeah i think and then i think another point too is uh you know for especially the rescuers and stuff working on the ground when they're in the business for a long time is you're going to get a a different skill set as you will on the rescue side as you will on the pilot side and we see it more and more now is you know there's a lot more junior and un um, experienced pilots getting thrown into the mix and albeit we're, we never stop learning, but there's definitely a skill set. So never just expect your pilot to be, you know, if you're long lining gear or if it's class D where they're slinging you or, or whatever, just, you know, at the same time, we give the guys on the ground a benefit of the doubt and a chance and mistakes happen. It's human, you know, give the, give the pilot the same type of thing and then let him, you know, if they're struggling or whatever, don't be, and that's something with force, you don't be so quick to just to, to get on his case and then want him out and like, let them learn the trade because that, at, at a certain point, you're going to run out of people that know how to do the job, right? It's just one of those things you can't, you can't learn unless you go out there and do it. And it's not something you, you can pick up in a day. You just got to go out there and get the experience. And uh, yeah, that's definitely something I would put out there is, you know, let these people, if they have the right attitude and they're, you know, they're, they're trying, well, give them, give them time to 
to figure it out. They will. And I guess that's something your current profession, my current profession is directly related to the military where those are hard physical skills and they can yeah. only be learned by experience. That's, that's the only exactly. way. Yeah. hundred percent. And then you know how it is. If you're, if you're given that atmosphere where you're allowed to learn and figure something out, you're probably going to pick it up a lot quicker. But if you have guys that are on the radio that are on your case and you can just feel that you're being, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're going to, you know, you're going to freeze up and you're going to, it's, you know, like, so I think at the end of the day, we're all trying to get a job done out there. Just let's you know, work, try to work together and give, give these guys a, a chance or, or women, you know, whatever it's, it's, yeah, these things take time. Uh, right on. One other thing, you've got another venture kind of on the go. Um, Legion engineer, do you want to just do a quick chat about that? Yeah, sure. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So to, to come to it, when I, when I got out, in 2000, whatever, um, and you had mentioned Keith, who was a, a Westie himself, and, and joined the lead at the same time. We um, we were all kind of off doing our our own things. Um, you know, I was obviously flying, but also doing the overseas stuff, as was Keith. And then, uh, yeah, I started um, Raven Hill Risk Control, which is you know a risk mitigation company, obviously uh, here in BC, and obviously we've worked with with you guys, Ronan, and. Uh, Raven Hill, as mentioned in the book, is a, it's a Victoria Cross that was uh, on my mom's side of the family. Um, he uh, George Raven Hill won a Victoria VC in the Boer War and uh, the Battle of Clenzo. Came back, went off to the First World War, and then uh, was obviously, in my interpretation of his, you know, the facts and stuff, and some of the the information that I got from his documents and stuff, is you know he started to suffer potentially from PTSD shell shock because he was getting himself into trouble, I think drinking and he found himself in a, uh, like a, a disciplinary platoon. And, uh, they actually, he was caught stealing steel in Birmingham in the, in the, in the yards. And his reasoning was that they weren't paying him his monthly wage that he was supposed to, and he couldn't afford to, to feed his family. He had four, four children. And, uh, he was one of eight VC recipients actually to have the VC taken back from by the queen or the, the UK government. And, uh, yeah, he had to, they sent three of their kids to orphanages, two went to the U S and one to Canada, I think. And as a parent, Mark, I'm sure you can appreciate how that would be just, you know, I mean, that'd be horrible sending yeah. kids off. Anyway. Um, yeah, he died, you know, destitute at my age. And, uh, so I use the name Raven Hill out of respect because it's obviously a brave man, you know, nobody's you're not just handed the visa victoria cross by any means especially in, during that era um and um yeah recently you know with the book and stuff i was invited to be the guest speaker at the uh royal westminster's uh, senior nco dinner a couple months back um by the rsm like bergen who was you know obviously we were friends back in the day and he was nice enough to offer me that opportunity and uh I went and I sat at the table there and then, uh, you know, just discussing with the CEO, some of the other NCOs, there was actually a couple guys that were there from the Midoc pocket. And, you know, they mentioned that after their tours in Afghanistan, they had two young guys that came back and after a while they decided to, to, you know, end their misery or whatever they were suffering with and kill themselves. And just PTSD just seemed, you know, like it's it's on the table and the discussion front more and more and uh i um yeah i was like you know 
what do I do with the book? Because that's, you know, being a guest speaker, I'm not I'm by no means, and I'm sure Mike Bergen and all the guests that were at the dinner will agree, I'm not a, a public speaker by, by any means. It's not my strong point. It's not something I like, and it's not something I ever want to do again. But obviously, if I'm asked, you know what I mean? If I'm asked, I'm, I'm more than honored, and I'll, I'll put in the time and effort, and uh, I'll stress about it until it happens. But um, I just thought, you know what? I don't, I don't like talking about myself, and I don't like the book to come across like it's about me. And I thought, you know what? Maybe here's a good, a good way to mix it all together. My efforts in Ravenhill, the book, and then helping PTSD. And so what I did was um, I created this, uh, it's, I guess you call it an apparel line, Legion Engineered. And we're just, you know, just selling what we hope is decent looking t-shirts and, and, and hoodies and stuff that, uh, you know, all the money would, uh, would go to support PTSD awareness, however we, we can. So it's, it's a fresh, you know, it's a new start. So every, at this point, all the, uh, all the money that's been coming in is just building the, the brand and getting it running. But that's the idea is just any soldier, you know, um, we're all, regardless of what country unit you work for, we're all men and women from the same, the same make. And if, if you're suffering from the effects of what our countries are asking you to do, you know, maybe you need, you need the help. And, uh, after the Jocko podcast, for example, I had a, an American soldier reach out to me and he said that uh, he left Afghanistan in, two, in 2012, 2012, and in his unit, they've had over 50 suicides since. And uh, I was, you know, I'm just blown away by the figures like that. I think to this day, I think there's been more American military uh, servicemen and women suicides than killed in all of uh, Vietnam. Stuff like that. I just hear like three a day or something. I, the more I hear about it, unfortunately, I don't know enough about it. I'm trying to, to learn more. But I just know as a father, if my son or my daughter decided to, to serve the country, which I would be honored that they would choose that that route, and then our government, us as the the voting public, deciding public, send them off to wherever to do the the jobs that most people don't want to do, and they come back and they feel the only answer is to, to end their lives, I would just be heartbroken, you know. So I don't know. It's, um, yeah maybe trying to help if we can help one person awesome that would be that would be enough and then it's you know it's starting to come together we're getting lots of people reaching out and i'm learning more about it and uh, yeah my hopes is hopefully the book will you know help a cause and that's what legion engineer is all about right on well that's a that's a noble and honorable thought about doing that i mean i appreciate it uh a fellow from my old unit that served in Afghanistan killed himself, I guess, a year and a half ago now, right out in front of the uh, right out in front of the unit. And so, to be able to have to be able to have that kind of support coming up through the system is certainly warranted and wanted. Yep, that's uh, yeah. We appreciate obviously Ronan's. Uh, you, know, you guys have supported us in the effort. Um, it's much appreciated, and uh, yeah that's early days but that's the objective just try to if we can get the awareness out there help and maybe it uh, it would avoid somebody like your your friend doing that because that's just that's just a horrible story you know it's sad it's sad you know that's in the end of the day it's just sad and that's things we don't know how people deal with these things so it's just trying to figure that out 
Yeah, I mean, when you join and you're all standing there in basic and everybody's so bright-eyed and wide-eyed and, you know, full of life and invincible at those ages. And yeah. to see what happens on the other side is definitely a tragedy. It is. And that's, uh, and I'll, you know, again, I come back to the point is, you know, we don't, we're not doing our young servicemen and women any good by not giving them a tough basic training and putting them through the grinds and testing their, their, the type of person they are and making sure that they want to do these types of jobs because, you know, unfortunately it's just going to get tougher. And, uh, yeah, that's, you know, I'm a strong believer in that. I think there's a reason for, and that's, you know, that's why, you know, the Legion book too is like they, they're, they're old school, but the system's effective. You know, if you're going to send people off to do nasty work, well then, give them the tools to do it and make sure they're the right type of person to go. Absolutely. Well, we're hitting about an hour here. I'm going to wrap this up and where can people get this book? It's a great book. Where can they pick it up? Yeah, it's uh so Appel Canadian, the French four legions, obviously available. Amazon's probably the easiest for the paperback, you know, any amazon.ca.com, wherever you are, the UK, France. Um, it's available ebook on Kindle, Kobo, Google, Apple, and they're doing the audio right now for the audio book. So it should be out uh, shortly. Um, and yeah, you can, I mean, you can order, pardon me? That's exciting. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it still weirds me out, to be honest with you. I, sometimes I just, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of strange. But um, honestly, um, you know, the feedback's been good. Um, that's what matters. Um, you know, there's obviously a worry that, people come back and just laugh right (laughs) but uh i think uh yeah i think the the effort has uh has paid off and everybody that's helped and all the uh the assistance and yeah it's uh it's come together and hopefully um yeah if people want to know the truth it's there that's uh, that's key and i had one lady reach out saying her son was interested in joining the legion and she bought him the book because you know there's not a ton of information out there and unfortunately a lot of the stuff that's out there was written by people that deserted and uh so they're basically just writing their narrative you know so this one is yeah so right there that that one dm pretty much made that appeal had served its purpose there was a young person interested in the truth and uh it was there for them to read there you go well thanks a lot for coming on joel i appreciate it i appreciate mark too yeah i appreciate the opportunity and and thank you